Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Christopher Columbus High School, a private Catholic school in Miami, Florida, had their prom last week. It was some jungle theme or whatever. Well, they decided it would be a good idea to feature several animals, including a caged tiger, a lemur, two macaws, and a fox. Apparently, the animals were used as props for the students' take-home photos. Well, wouldn't you know, the high school's getting a lot of backlash for this. Outraged by animal rights activists and just normal caring individuals with the brain ensued, which was all sparked by a Facebook post of the details of the wild animals' appearances. These posts and pictures on Facebook were from Maria Christine Castellanos, whose brother attended the school. And videos show the tiger in a very small cage pacing around in tight circles, appearing very anxious. Her comment, this poor tiger was used as an exotic amusement for the mindless teenagers who were present. It's not the student's fault to be so naive, but it's the CCHS staff who arranged this event. She also told WSVN-TV, this is an event to have fun and amusement, but is torturing an animal really considered amusement? You guys paid to see this happen to an innocent animal who had nowhere to run, who was completely afraid. Castellano's mother also expressed dismay with this event. I was appalled, she said. We are all animal advocates in this house. It's, meaning the tiger, super scared, said someone in the crowd, observed the dancers juggled flames before the tiger. According to the Washington Post, it, again referring to the tiger, could not escape the light show. In addition to the flames, the fire, geysers of sparklers exploded on every side of the tiger, drawing applause from the boys and their dates. Hmm. And not only the tiger. I mean, consider the other wild animals present there. You think they're enjoying the fires and sparklers around them? I don't think so. Oh, and it was reported that the students passed around a tiny African fennec fox like a corsage. The fox hung rather limply in photos that have since been deleted from a school Instagram account. You know, this fox, this wild animal was probably drugged. So he or she wouldn't bite or scratch anyone and drugged enough so as not to appear scared or nervous and sedated enough so he wouldn't be squirming and escaping out of everyone's hands as he's being passed around. It's just terrible. So many ignorant and insensitive people here. Officials made a statement, quote, the tiger, which was displayed for a few minutes in a cage, was never harmed or in danger, was not forced to perform and always accompanied by his handler. And for the great majority of the time was laying down in a relaxed state facing away from the audience. Well, these people are clearly missing the point of the outrage. Okay, even if the animals were only displayed for a few minutes, these animals still are suffering deprived environments, high levels of stress from the extreme confinement and unnatural conditions. And plus, we don't know where all these animals came from and traveled from. And there's a lot of stress that goes along with transporting wild animals, no matter how short a distance it might be. But even in the best circumstances, just the fact that you're subjecting the animals to a loud event and forcing them into close proximity to crowds of people is stressful and cruel. Incredible you can't see this and believe this. And regardless of the length of time that they're kept in captivity, tigers or or any wild animal for that matter, bears, foxes, whatever, 
never, ever get used to being in public settings. And very ignorant statements by the school's marketing director who defended the decision to bring in the animals. She says animals were brought in by professionals and school officials were assured that they are properly cared for. The statement continues, the event included jungle-themed decorations and several animals were displayed in a very controlled situation, including a lemur, two macaws, an African fennec fox, and a tiger. I mean, just the way the statement was phrased. The event included jungle-themed decorations and several animals were displayed. As if, not if, they are. These animals were displayed along with decorations like decorations and objects. And those of us who are sensitive to these kinds of situations know that animals are sentient beings and thus to use them as decorations is by our moral definition, cruel and abusive. Let's see here. The statement goes on to say that all the creatures were provided by facilities that are licensed by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. The school said the hotel also approved the animal's role in the performance. Again, just because they were legally obtained by a licensed breeder and or broker or individual who will be profiting from this rental of these animals, just because the hotel approved the animal's role in the performance doesn't mean it's ethical or humane or anything but animal exploitation and cruelty. And again, what message are you giving to your students and to the world that you think displaying and exploiting animals so the prom students can be amused is okay? This is a Catholic school, right? Doesn't Catholicism play some emphasis on the value of the non-human life? I, I don't know. I, I would think the church must support the notion that animals are God's creatures, and thus we owe them kindness. Anyway, the principal of the high school did respond to the attack or backlash in a statement sent to ABC affiliate WPLG. He states, upon reflection, we regret the decision to have live animals at our prom. This decision in no way reflects the merest values, teaching of the Catholic Church and or the accomplishments of our young and that of our distinguished alumni. He also states, we will evaluate our current policies and procedures in the planning and management of school events, including the impact these events have on others. We all have learned a great deal from this experience. Okay, Peter's handing me something here. Hot off the press. Oh, I always wanted to say that. Hot off the press. Okay, according to plant-based news, dated the 16th of May, the ban of wild animals at that particular school, Christopher Columbus High School, is now in place. Wow. Way to go, Mr. Principal. Great. Okay. Oh, I wanted to mention that the school did not respond to questions asking which company provide the prom animals. I'm sure we can find that out if we want. I'm not sure it matters. Anyway, this might be a good thing that this happened because maybe other schools or anyone having public events might think twice before renting animals as props. I'm actually really impressed that the principal or whomever was instrumental in implementing this ban at the school did it and did it so quickly. Typically, it takes an injury to a student or human being from a wild animal at these events for someone to be motivated enough to do something about it. You know, years ago, I 
along with other concerned residents of the Coachella Valley in Southern California, tried to convince the fair board to not permit the exhibition of exotic animals at our annual Riverside County Fair and Date Festival that's held every year in Indio, California. The festival had conducted zebra, ostrich, and camel races, hosted a baboon act, displayed pythons, macaws, and other animals, all in the name of entertainment. In addition, a tiger cub has been used for photos with patrons. And we tried to educate seemingly intelligent, compassionate individuals about this and trying to convince the board that our famous annual fair would really be better off if the only animals present or displayed were the sheltered homeless animals looking for a loving home. Of course, by this, I mean getting homeless animals there for possible adoption, like a combined adoption event. You know, really, in this day and age, using exotic animals for entertainment purposes is globally viewed as inhumane. In fact, as you know, numerous municipalities and cities have banned the use of exotic animals used for entertainment. In addition, even if you don't care about the welfare of animals, we all know that in more cases than not, it's practically inevitable that a human being will be injured or attacked or bitten or worse. Someone usually and eventually gets hurt. And finally, what kind of message are we trying to send to our kids? That it's okay to use animals as props and that it's okay to ignore any stress or suffering that the animals might be experiencing and these animals exist for our amusement? All right, well, going back to the high school prom night in Florida, I sure hope the animals are okay. They weren't traumatized too badly. And what a shame that this year's prom in Florida will be remembered by this disturbing event. Hey, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and thanks for listening to Animals Today. Not only can you find us on your radio dial, but you can also listen to the show by going to animalstodayradio.com, or you can subscribe to the Apple Podcast on iTunes. And remember to follow us on Facebook and join the conversation. Animals Today is brought to you by the animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And consider making a donation to help support the show. And thank you for your interest and your support. Today's Animals Today Minute is about the platypus and specifically about two intriguing features of this peculiar creature. The bill of the platypus, described as being smooth to touch with the feel akin to suede and is flexible and rubbery, is used to scoop up its meals such as worms and shrimp from the muddy floors of streams, ponds, and lakes. As the platypus lacks teeth, gravel is also taken in at the same time, so its grinding plates can pulverize the food into small digestible bits. But the bill may be even more interesting for the specialized sense organ it has. Thousands of microscopic electroreceptors detect moving prey by sensing electrical activity associated with their muscle contractions. The skin of the bill also contains numerous mechanoreceptors called push rods, which are thought to aid in the animal's ability to detect and judge the direction and distance of moving prey. There's still much to be learned about how these sensors work and interact in concert. Another noteworthy aspect of platypuses are the venomous spurs on the heel of each rear foot in males. 
They appear to be used to fend off rival males during courtship and mating. So as cute as these creatures are, mind their spurs, because the venom they can inject is nasty. It will cause immediate, extreme, and long-lasting pain, which curiously is impervious to the pain-relieving effects of morphine. Its constituents are still being figured out, but one chemical lowers blood pressure and another looks to be a neurotoxin. Consider yourself warned. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Welcome back to Animals Today. Hello, Lori. Hi, Peter. Okay, with all the hullabaloo about that high school in Florida and the tiger and other animals they had on display, I thought I would talk a little bit about captive tigers in America, right? Right. There are uh, thousands of captive tigers, and they're generally all exploited, and uh, they are owned by these uh, roadside zoos and attractions largely, and uh, really what happens to these poor animals and the cubs is just a, a tragedy, and it is just ridiculous that it is still legal, but really it it is. And there is this term called cub petting. Remember that one? And in cub petting, the idea is to create cub tigers, and then when they are at the right age, which is approximately 8 to 12 weeks of age, you are permitted with your little license to pass the tiger around and let your paying customers get pictures of them holding these little uh, tigers. And um, these cubs, it's really a shame. They're removed from their mothers as infants instead of being with them for two years. And they're passed around from person to person, often for like hours at a time. They can get dehydrated. They can be totally stressed out. And they're also exposed to viruses like canine distemper virus that dogs carry. It's very lethal for the big cats. They are fed by bottle. They don't have regular diet, so they can become malnourished, and they get this thing called metabolic bone disease, and the bones are weak, and they break easily. And then you're left with crippled, injured tigers. The window for these tigers to make money for their owners is very narrow, so they have to get a lot of viewings and paying customers right away. And sometimes the owners reportedly delay the normal feeding of these tigers to extend their value. So these tiger cubs are really um, abused. Of course, their mothers are also abused. They are bred at usually a very rapid pace. Uh, usually, like I said before, they will stay with their cubs for as long as two years in the wild, which means that they would only uh, produce a litter like once every three years. But when the cubs are removed from their captive mother, and then they are forced to have another litter. They can have up to three litters per year. And this obviously is very stressful for the health of the mother, and it's just absolutely cruel. Now, the public, the public doesn't really know what's going on. They are kept in the dark about this. They think it's a cute thing, and you get a picture of your kid holding a tiger, and they are being misled. They are told it's educational. They are told that it supports conservation, which it does not. There is nothing about conservation in this whole industry of cub breeding and petting. Most of the tigers in roadside zoos are actually hybrids. They're crosses between different subspecies. And that means that even if you could find a place to release them, they totally are 
unsuited to life in the wild. It just could not happen. And besides, these places are not going to release them anyway. Uh, moreover, if you cared, and I don't think they do, uh, releasing these hybrids into the wild would just mess up the whole genetic pool anyway in the wild. So that's not a good idea. So it's just a huge mess. We need stronger legislation. IFAW, one of our favorite animal welfare groups in the world, is trying to do something about this. And really, it's going to take nationwide legislation to just make the private ownership of big cats just illegal. Peter, this is data from Healthy Paws Pet Insurance. And the topic of the survey is how much do you love your pet? Okay. First question, do you celebrate your pet's birthday? What percentage of the people said that they celebrated their birthday every year? It's a big deal. We do presents and have a party. Mm. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, 30%. 41%. Okay. 10% said no. I'm not sure when my pet's birthday is. And 49% said sometimes we keep it low key with a small treat or toy. Keep it low key. You know, even if you don't know the birth date, I mean, you make a birth date up. Celebrate it every year. I agree. Okay. Do you consider your pet part of the family? So, Peter, what percentage of people said no, pets are pets and not exactly family? Well, that's terrible. Uh, 8%. 1%. 1%. 5% said yes, but I refer to myself as pet owner. And 94% said yes, I'm a full-on pet parent. Okay. Do you bring your pet on vacation? What percent of people said yes, always they bring their pet on vacation? Always. Woo. Uh, 50%. Mm 30%. 51% said, I try to bring my pet on vacation as often as I can. 19% said, no, vacations are just for the two-legged family members. Okay. How many nicknames do you have for your furry friend? Oh, that's a good one. So what percentage of people said, my pet has tons of nicknames, at least 10? Oh, 5%. 37%. 21%, my pet has one or two nicknames. 2% said none. Hmm. 40% said they have around five nicknames. There's about five in our family, right, per pet? Yes. How often do you talk to your pet? What percent said, I have an ongoing conversation with my pet all the time? I'm going to say that is going to be high in this group. I'm going to say that's like uh, 70%. 88%. That's very high. 10% said, I sometimes talk to my pet. Mm-hmm. 2% said, only when I need them to do something. Yes. Yes. We talk to our pets. And what are they saying back to us? <laughs> Next one. Do you and your pet exercise together? Well, 8% said, I don't exercise with my pet. 4% said, we do agility or we go hiking. we go on long walks every day. 2% said we go running or jogging weekly. 72% said we play every day. That's nice. How often do you buy gifts for your pet? 55% a few times a month. No excuse needed. 30% every other month or so. I buy new toys and treats when they run out. 6% said I only buy the basics when needed, a new leash, the occasional treat, etc. 9%. Once or twice a year for Christmas or their birthday. Scrooges out there. I know. How much do you spend on your pet each month? Okay, now we're getting down okay, to brass so tacks here. What percent, this uh-huh. is the highest amount, $150 okay. or more. What percent of people said $150 or more? I'm going to say 20%. 18%. Yeah. 43% said 25 to $75 per month on their pet. 31% said 75 to $150. And... 8% said less than $25. 
Okay. Where do you think we are on that scale? Yeah, I think we're... We have our own category. <laughs> we are two It's like silly, ridiculous. There you go. Okay. That's right. from Healthy Paws Pet Insurance. Thank you. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. Uh, right now, I'm pleased to welcome Adam Roberts. He is a good friend of the show. Uh, Adam is a nonprofit consultant based in Washington, D.C., with more than 25 years in animal protection. Hey, Adam. Hey, it's good to be back with you. Adam, I invited you back to talk about methods and strategies being employed both around the world in terms of curbing demand and locally where elephants continue to be poached. And I know you are working with a group in Tanzania called the PAMS Foundation. So why don't you start us off on ways to protect elephants? Yeah, so one of the things that I think has been um, noticed over time, obviously, is that there are different strategies to dealing with wildlife conservation generally, and perhaps elephant protection specifically, looking at anti-poaching efforts to stop people from killing elephants and smuggling the ivory. And, and those two you know, general concepts are kind of the market-led approaches where you have consumer governments like the United States or China trying to stop the sale of ivory, the consumption of ivory, really shut down the markets for the ivory. But then there's a second, I think, equally if not more important drive, which is in the local communities where the elephants actually live in the elephant range states to try and engage in what's called community-led conservation, where you have communities that are actually taking a stake in wildlife protection and realizing that there's actually uh, much more profit to be made for the community by having live elephants rather than dead ones. And so the PAMS Foundation in Tanzania really looks at these sort of community-led and community-driven programs to protect wildlife and the wild places in which they thrive. And I think that sort of bottom-up community-led approach is, uh, is really the wave of the future. How bad is the situation on the ground? Um, from here in North America, there's a constant stream, it seems, of uh, stories of poaching and uh, dead rangers and uh, pictures of the uh, carcasses. Yeah, so we've, we've learned over the past few decades, right, that, um, that it's an incredibly dangerous business trying to protect wildlife. And as you mentioned, there, there are park rangers, wildlife law enforcement agents that are usually outmanned and outgunned in their battles to protect wildlife in the protected areas in which they're supposed to thrive. Uh, because these poachers are not just sort of the old-fashioned uh, conception of an individual substance hunter who, um, you know, kills an elephant and sells the tusk in order to feed the family. It's really these heavily involved criminal syndicates, international wildlife crime syndicates, 
that are driving elephant poaching and ivory smuggling. And so there's a real risk to the people on the ground uh, when you have these intricate networks that are very global in scope and very profitable uh, for the people who are making the money off the ivory trade. So uh, the people overseas will fund these operations, and you have, as I say, well-financed, well-armed poachers coming in, killing elephants, smuggling the ivory to the transit points where the ivory is then packed for shipment and then sent overseas, oftentimes by boat, by plane, by any mechanism they can uh, to get it to the destination points where it's usually carved and sold. So it's an incredibly risky business for the people on the ground who have to protect these animals, and, and oftentimes they do pay the ultimate price. So is the poaching, as you described, a bigger problem than, say, your trophy hunter from Europe or North America? I would say that the poaching problem is is a different problem than the trophy hunting one. And, and, and by that, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you still have elephants being killed. And obviously, we have a very dangerous situation currently with the Trump administration uh, declaring that they are going to once again consider uh, permits for the importation of trophies uh, of elephants by American trophy hunters. And between America and Europe, you really do have a serious pressure that trophy hunters can put on elephant populations by killing them for sport. I think overall, uh, if you look historically, you'll find that poaching for the ivory trade is really what's driven the demise of the elephant across Africa. Of course, you know, in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, the ivory trade and poaching of elephants drove African elephant populations from about 1.3 million to somewhere around 600,000 or fewer individuals across the continent. And it wasn't until 1989, where there was a global prohibition on the commercial trade in elephant ivory, that prices for ivory started to bottom out, and therefore the market started to dry up, and as a result, uh, poaching was diminished, and populations of elephants were able to stabilize. Uh, But now what we see is sort of the pendulum is swinging constantly back and forth with moves to protect elephants and then moves to reopen either the ivory trade in a limited way or, as I just mentioned, trophy hunting of elephants. So obviously I think the word of the day really is vigilance, that uh, globally we have to be really careful not to, to slip back into a complacent perspective where we think elephant populations are safe across Africa and therefore start to weaken the regulations that are set in place to protect them. Outline some of the uh, particulars that can be done um, in the local area to combat this and uh, what sorts of uh, resources are required to implement yeah, so, so the on-the-ground stuff that I say is most important, and again, what, what PAMS Foundation has shown to be effective in, in Tanzania, for example, uh, it involves sort of a suite of activities. The one that, that's probably most um, ubiquitously known is the concept of equipping the wildlife law enforcement agents. You know, you really have to make sure that the people who are on the ground doing the serious sleeves rolled up work to protect elephants and other wild species have the the resources that they need, the tools that they need to protect the animals. And so that's that's one of the most important things, making sure that these folks are equipped with all the latest technology and all the um, equipment needed to protect the animals on the ground. But one of the things that, that I think is also important is sort of innovative strategies to work with the local communities, as I mentioned before, to ensure that they feel that they've got a good stake in all of this and and you find that you know in a place like Tanzania when you start to crack down on the ivory trade and when you start to protect elephants from the poachers bullets 
you end up having more elephants because people aren't poaching them to the point of extinction or near extinction in any given country. Uh, and that means there are more elephants, which oftentimes can lead to human-elephant conflict, right? You've got all these farmers there who are trying to raise their crops, but now you have these elephants that are coming into conflict with the people in their land, trampling the crops and putting people's lives at danger. So one of the things that the PAMS Foundation does that I find incredibly innovative is work with the farmers to install what they call chili fencing, which is simply creating these barriers around the farms that are simply ropes that tie together cloth and the cloths are drenched in a combination of hot chili paste and engine oil, mm. and that actually dissuades elephants from coming into the cropland. Uh, they're averse to the smell of the chili and oil mixture. And so you have these farmers who, A, plant some of these chili peppers on their crops, which is a lucrative business for them, and then use some of that chili powder, chili paste, um, to create the chili fencing, which keeps the elephants away. So you end up with uh, a real symbiotic relationship between elephants and people rather than conflict. And those, you know, combined strategies of protecting elephants the way they need protecting, but then also uh, making sure that communities and the people in the communities can live with elephants is the, is the proper balance for ensuring uh, that both people and, and animals like elephants can thrive. Is the government functional in this country? Is uh, corruption rampant or can you uh, work with the government? Yeah, I think you find with governments you have the same situation where, you know, some governments um, have higher levels of corruption than others. I think Tanzania has come a long way in uh, cracking down both on corruption and on poaching and illegal trade in elephants. And, and I think that's the case across a lot of Africa and, and across the world. And, you know, as I said at the beginning, I think it really takes both sides to make this relationship for conservation work. So you have, you know, advancements in China where they're trying to crack down on local ivory markets in China. And you have places like Tanzania working harder to protect elephants from the poachers. And so together you end up with, you know, sort of this government relationship where they're making sure that there's um, less ivory being sent around the world illegally. And whenever there is ivory that's being sent illegally or elephants are being poached, you have a more strict crackdown uh, on that illegal activity. And poachers are not only captured, but face significant enough prison sentences and or fines to make sure that you deter others from doing the same. So I think I think more and more, uh, perhaps setting aside uh, what's happening in the United States at the moment, governments around the world are recognizing that they need to do more to protect uh, animals like elephants for the long term. So if listeners want to learn more about the uh, foundation, and I will just add, there is a branch that is based in the U.S., so there is a nonprofit status in the U.S. if they want to get a tax deduction for donations, right? That's right. There's there's PAM Foundation, uh, PAMS Foundation in the U.S. and the PAMS Foundation in Tanzania. And folks can just go to PAMS, P-A-M-S, PAMSFoundation.org in order to find out more and to support the work that we do. Today's Animals Today Minute is about the invasive species of the Everglades. The Everglades of southern Florida has been extensively and rapidly transformed by non-native invasive plant and animal species. Dozens of invasive plants thrive in the Everglades, being introduced both inadvertently and deliberately, and often as byproducts of the pet trade and horticultural industries.
The scores of invasive animal species include mammals, amphibians, reptiles, and birds, with the Burmese python being the most notorious example. Invasive animals are introduced as escaped or released pets, as stowaways in cargo ships, and as home aquarium releases. In addition to the Burmese python, the Everglades Cooperative Invasive Species Management Area has identified 11 other invasive species the public should be aware of, which it refers to as the Dirty Dozen. On the list are tegu lizards, the Nile monitor, the Cuban tree frog, chameleons, the giant African snail, the bullseye snakehead, that's a fish, the lionfish, and four plants, the Australian pine, the old world climbing fern, the Brazilian pepper tree, and the air potato. In the Everglades, the Burmese python has no natural predators, except for crocodiles and humans, and thus is thriving. In the glades, their average size is 8 to 10 feet in length, but examples of 17 feet have been found. They mostly prey upon small mammals, including the endangered Key Largo wood rat, birds, and reptiles. They have decimated the populations of raccoons, opossums, and bobcats, and have killed off the rabbit and fox populations. As you can see, their harmful effect on the ecosystem has been huge. These semi-aquatic constrictors are also good climbers and often inhabit trees. Fortunately, they rarely attack humans. For animal advocates, what to do about this invasive species and others worldwide presents few good options. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission encourages individuals and contractors to seek out and kill these snakes. They offer cash rewards, t-shirt prizes, and raffle entries for documented kills. The agency also offers training on some of the methods of their safe removal and humane euthanasia, including live training courses, an internet-based course, and an educational video on capturing Python safely. But humane relocation is not in the cards for these unfortunate predators. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Lori. Peter. Uh, I'm feeling a little annoyed today. Why? Uh, I don't know. I saw... Uh, maybe I shouldn't be annoyed. It was just like a dog and dog's guardian or owner, and dog's got multicolored toenail polish on all the toenails, all different colors. And I'm like, that's annoying. Should I be annoyed by that? I don't know. It's probably not hurting the dog, but... Why do they do it? Yeah, I don't know. I have a multicolored toenail dog. You know what I, they I call know. that? No. Dog an... podicures. Oh, boy. Well, that annoys me. Actually, there are a lot of things that annoy me about pet owners and guardians and their and their dogs. They're my pet peeves about pets. Do you have anything that annoy you that people do with their animals? Oh, boy. <laughs> Where do we start? Where do we start? Well, let me just... Uh, continue this thought. And I guess I'm not that annoyed by the nail polish, except for I think it's very silly. But I saw a photo online recently of a tattooed dog. Okay. No, that's bad. So that's really, I don't okay, like that. We don't, we don't like that. Right. So that's like not even a pet peeve. That's like you're crazy, horrible person. Okay. So what annoys you about people and their dogs? Number one pet peeve, I would say breeders. Oh, like you, the whole class of people. Yeah. Oh, breeders. Yeah. Okay. Like, Number two, uh-huh. breeders who say they love dogs. Oh. Right? You, you mean the ones who are uh, selling them? I yeah. Mean, they, it's sort of 
gets intertwined, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. Oh, okay. I love dogs. But if you love dogs, then you wouldn't be breeding when you mm. know that millions of dogs in our shelters are dying every year, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Oh, Number three. Wait, you have oh. to keep the breed alive. I'm yeah, just doing yeah, my, I know. Uh, yeah. Send, uh, Number three. Okay. Breeders. <laughs> breeders that rescue dogs. Oh. Because then they're not being consistent. Yeah. And they're using that as an excuse so they could breed dogs, right? Oh, I rescue, so it's okay. I'll breed yeah. more dogs. Oh, I've heard that dozens of times. Okay, I'll get off the subject of breeders <laughs> okay. now. Okay. You know what really bothers me is when you see the dogs on the hot asphalt, and you know that it's got to be hurting the paws and the owner or the guardian or whoever's walking them is just oblivious or doesn't care. They wouldn't even walk barefoot themselves on the asphalt and it's just too hot and dogs like hopping and you just know they're uncomfortable. It's just so Oh, stupid. not only that, I mean, it can cause first, second degree burns. And I know. The I know. skin can come off and bloody paws. And That's, I know. It's just, you're right. They are oblivious to that, similar to leaving their dogs in the car. On a hot day or a warm day, right? Yes, I know you've... That's uh, another pet peeve. You've uh, opined about that. Oh, you better believe it. <laughs> yeah, More than I opined. I know. Uh, you love the opportunity to break into... Uh, love it. Yes. Love it. Yes, you're two hammers in your car at all times. <laughs> all ready to do it. <laughs> you know what else really bugs me is just when people want to buy these popular dogs, like a dog breed gets popular, right? Like when the Obamas got their... Portuguese water dog and then all the breeders start breeding these animals and everyone wants them as if anyone cares and uh, the Dalmatian deal after uh, after one of those Dalmatian movies. Yes, Peter, as we know, research shows that, that the release of films featuring dogs can influence the popularity of certain breeds for up to a decade. Yeah, boy. And the more successful the film, the greater the impact. Like you said, we saw a huge surge in the Dalmatian purchases after the movie 101 Dalmatians came out in 1985. And similarly, sales of Collies rose by 40% after the release of Lassie Come Home. That was in 1943. And the popularity of Old English Sheepdogs increased 100-fold after 1959 Disney film The Shaggy Dog. Now, I read the impact was more marked in the early 20th century when there was less competition for television and the Internet and other films. Scientists have warned such films could be bad for dogs, as these popular breeds often have the most inherited disorders. You know, I don't see how this phenomenon ends, unfortunately. But how about something a little bit more benign? What do you think about the folks who dress their dogs up in costumes like around Halloween or or the other holidays. You, you know, I think it's okay as long as it's safe for the dogs and they use common sense, right? Okay, I guess I can't get too upset about that. Some of the costumes are really cute. They are cute. I know. Okay, okay. Oh, I have a good one. Shoot. Biggest pet peeve. One of my biggest pet peeves. Testicles on dogs. Yeah. Okay. Right? Yes. Okay. Also, I've heard you uh, uh, scream when you see like dogs in the back of pickup trucks. Oh, I know. And they're I... unrestrained and they're just like... You know, guys driving along and got big dog in the back and, oh, don't worry, he's safe back there. It really annoys me. Yeah. yeah. That is legit. Okay. Right. How about the dog on a lap when you're driving? I know. Oh, well, it's only a little dog. And you see these old people with their handicap stickers with their dog on the lap, yeah, right? Yeah. As if they need more distraction. Right. Exactly. I know. I know. How about clogs on a dog? We have a Clog. neighbor who puts clogs on their dog when yeah. they walk. I know. Like, is this supposed to be 
a fashion thing or, or is a it hot to, weather thing? Yeah, or is it I, supposed to protect their dogs? The dog clearly, clearly is not happy about wearing these shoes. You see the little high stepping maneuvers? It, it's just laughable, actually. I don't get it. And in our neighborhood, we often walk past a house and there's a gate and you can see a dog behind the gate just looking out so lonely. Oh, I know which dog like, you're talking about. And we're like, oh, this dog would love to play or say hi to our dogs. And we even once encountered the owner of the house and asked him if his dog wants any company. He said, no, looks like not interested. Right. He's fine. Yeah. He's oh, fine. It's just no. so, it's heartbreaking almost. Gives you his little sad, lonely eyes. Yeah. The dog wants a little attention. You better believe it. Yeah. What do you think about people who bike with their dog? Oh, that's a whole interesting topic there. I will say occasionally it seems okay. The biker seems to have a clue and the dog understands how the game is played. But much too often I see out of control and an accident waiting to happen. Absolutely. Yeah, most of the time I would say. Yeah. I mean, unless and, you actually really train your dog to do this well, I don't see how it can and, be And safe. it's a dog who can do it. You know, it's right, got to be just exactly. the right. The other thing that bugs me about cyclists and nothing against people on bikes, but please, if you are riding and you see someone walking with their dogs, give the dog and the person some space. Okay. Right. right. Cause the dog is on a leash and before you know it, they can be four feet or five feet closer to you than you thought. So you got to give them some space. Yeah, so many times we're walking our dogs and these bikers come out of nowhere down the hill, two feet from where yeah. we are. Yeah. Lori, I was sort of in a bad mood starting the segment, but you're pretty excited now too, aren't you? I like being annoyed with people and pet peeves. <laughs> How about the elderly person who adopts a young dog? Yeah. Is that annoying or what? I hope that phenomenon is fading. You see it once in a while. It's just not that smart. And finally, the mother of all pet peeves, right? The mother, the grandmother, not picking up after your dog. Yeah. Right? And that's like a basic thing. So you just got to do that. Now, around here, unfortunately, we are blamed for other people's poo once in a while. We sure are. And that's not correct. Just because we're known as dog people and dog advocates. So uh, they see poop on a lawn. They automatically say that must be Lori and I Peter's dogs. I don't know why they think that. I know. Okay. We've been falsely accused many times, right? You know, any time someone sees me walking around, it's usually with a bag in my hand. Right. Filled back. We are the best poop picker-uppers around. So everyone should be like us. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. I think that's enough complaining for one segment of I the show. I feel so much better. <laughs> Me too. Okay. Good. I'm glad I turned your mood around. Yeah. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. The animals. 